Right, good evening. Awesome time of worship. We are finishing up the book of Ezra tonight. We're in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. If you need a Bible, they're over here on the sides. <laughs> Come get one. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to fix this. I know it's for the youth, but just kind of throws me off. <laughs> That's right. It's my CD in me, I confess. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, that you meet us here, and you're here to speak to our hearts and instruct us and show us and lead us and guide us and love on us. And Lord, thank you for the sweet time of worship. Lord, that we ask your blessing upon our kids downstairs as they're being ministered to and your word being taught them, Lord, that you would bless them and bless our time tonight, we pray. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time together, we saw that Ezra, the priest, scribe, had been living in Babylon. He was finally given permission to go with any of the Jews that wanted to to return to Israel. And the king actually commissioned uh, to him to establish a system of law and justice based on the word of God. Even gave a silver and gold to buy offerings to sacrifice to the Lord once they got there, once they, they arrived. And ended, we saw that God divinely protected them on their journey and they arrived in Jerusalem safely. Then they offered their sacrifices and delivered King Artaxerxes' command to the local. No doubt there was excitement in the air. It was, it was great. It was the people were worshiping the Lord, putting him first after all these years of captivity. Finally arrived, and we read in verse 1 of chapter 9, When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Boy, talk, talk about, you know, not being as you expected. Things not turning out like what you hoped. What a shock this had to be for Ezra. See, the Lord had forbid an intermarriage between the idolatrous nations and His chosen people. Forbid, forbade it. Why was that bad? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, the first deals with prophecy. See, all the prophecies concerning the Messiah was that Jesus would come through the Jewish race. So if Satan can dilute and, uh, and or even do away with the Jewish race, then Messiah could not be born. I mean, have you ever wondered, you know, how the Jewish people could be able to preserve their identity even to this day? It's the Lord. No matter how, you know, much Satan may try, God's prophecies are, will never be changed. They're not going to be altered. Secondly, intermarriage was a major concern practically for through it. God's people would inevitably begin to follow these pagan customs. And that's what trouble in the first Lord told them in Deuteronomy 7, when you go into the land of the Sites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Termites, all those, rest of the heathen nations there. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 2. 
You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 2 through 6. They were to remain a wholly separate people, but they didn't. So they're taken into captivity 70 years. Hopefully they learn that lesson once and for all. Ezra shows up on the scene and sees they're living right back there in sin again. Suddenly their sin had found them out. Numbers 32, 23. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Many years ago, Thomas Ballard, 29 of Delhi, was arrested after a woman reported receiving a late night call from someone saying, I've killed them all. Well, Ballard's number showed up on the woman's caller ID. He called by mistake, meaning instead to get a buddy to talk about his success in a video game he was playing. Sergeant Julie Lewis, a spokesman for the Louisiana State Police, said that, that the authorities followed up at the address to investigate whether there had been a foul play. Found no evidence of wrongdoing, she said. But they did find, in the process of identifying Ballard, that he had a five-year-old warrant out of Baton Rouge charging him with failure to appear on a possession of cocaine charges. He was booked in the Richland Parish Detention Center for extradition in Baton Rouge. It says it was the way that this way all came down, Lewis said Tuesday, that this isn't something you could just make up. No, but God could. God knew exactly what was going on. Five years later, his sin found him out. See, here, in the same way, Ezra shows up and suddenly this horrible sin is exposed. Now understand, Ezra was sent back with orders from King Artaxerxes to appoint magistrates and, and judges and to put into place a, a system of law, a justice based upon the word of God. What a great concept, huh? <laughs> uh, to establish a nation based upon the word of God. You know, when a, a nation no longer desires to be governed by God's laws, then it seems that a nation will no longer be protected by God either. Which I think is really a sign of just living in the last days. Jesus said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Well, here we see Ezra, he comes in, he hears the bad news. Verse 3 we read, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Whoa. I mean, do we hate sin that much? When Ezra heard about sin, how rampant was it, he sat down astonished. That word for astonished in the Hebrew means to be awestruck or stupefied with horror, to be made desolate through astonishment. I mean, the fact that the people, uh, God's people had entered into sin so quickly after returning to Jerusalem, after leaving Babylon, after 70 years of captivity, they returned back to that same sin that got them into trouble in the first place. And to make matters worse, we read that it was the leaders and the rulers, those uh, at the top of the list in virtue that says that were in blatant rebellion against the law of God. That's what really blew Ezra away. So much so that he begins to pluck his hair off of his, his head and, and beard and rips his clothes apart. Can you imagine pulling the hair out of your head? It just, it would, I mean, it would be awful. Doing the same thing with his beard, radical as well as extremely painful. 
But you see, his actions were demonstrating his inward feelings. He tore his clothes to, to demonstrate that his heart was ripped apart. He pulled out his hair and beard, causing himself physical pain to, to match that of his spirit. Then he just sat down in silence, acting as if someone had died. What a truly fitting response. Since God had granted them so much uh, life and new opportunity in here, they just turned away from it and go right back to their old ways. You know, when you return to the things that God has delivered you from, it really is as if you're choosing death over life. It's kind of a spiritual suicide. You don't lose your salvation, but you're acting as if you'd rather be dead again in your sins. That alone should cause astonishment. Well, then in seeing Ezra and hearing him in verse 4, we read, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Remember, Ezra was a scribe and a teacher, and he had been called to teach the Scriptures. He may have even been in a place where he was teaching the people right here. And as they see Ezra and possibly hearing him teach the word of God, we see this large crowd all gathered around in verse 4. Those who heard trembled at the words of God. They trembled because they knew what we read in Deuteronomy, that God forbade uh, this type of behavior. They were caught. It's black and white. God said he would quickly destroy them if they entered into this type of behavior, and they had. You know, there are a lot of people today who refuse to believe that God says what he means and means what he says. God over and over again has, has said, unless men repent, they will be judged. But sadly, men refuse to accept that. And they go on living their lives in rebellion against God and his word, refusing to believe that judgment will ever come. But it will. Well, in verse 5 we read, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now, he hasn't started praying yet. We read he was in an unplanned fast, no doubt wrestling with these spiritual issues. Finally, he gets up at the evening sacrifices. No doubt the people are thinking, now what? What is Ezra going to do? What's going to happen? And then without saying a word to the people, we read here that he falls down on his knees, spreads out his hands to the Lord my God, he says. Still blown away by this whole situation. Then in verse 6 we begin to read his prayer. He says, And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. What's interesting about Ezra's prayer, as he's praying to the Lord, he's including himself in this prayer as a part of the nation who was in sin. He didn't stand back and say, Oh Lord, I can't believe these backsliders that did this, and how they disregarded your word, and, and they, did that, they did this. No. He recognized his place with the people of God. He recognized he was responsible with them. It shows to us the spiritual truth that we're all connected as believers. That is, what we do as a body of believers affects each other. And we'll see that sin isn't confined just to one person. It affects a group of people, family, kids. The whole thing we'll see in a moment. So Ezra is praying in the first person as if he's guilty. He goes on in verse 8. 
in his prayer. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in a holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. I want to camp out in verses 8 and 9 for a moment. Talk about revival. In Ezra's prayer, in verse 8, he cries out how God has given them grace by keeping the people together as a remnant for the purpose that God would send a measure of revival. And if you have the old King James Version, it reads, a little reviving. Ezra seems to be indicating that God can measure out to you a little bit of revival to see what you will do with it. In the case of the Jews returning to Bab- from Babylon to Jerusalem, God measured out a little revival. They had their, their, their temple, uh, rebuilt their temple, they, they reestablished worship. They also had, however, disobeyed God's laws by intermarrying with, with, with the, the heathen nations there. This little revival God had measured out to them was faltering because they had not acted upon it with their hearts. Sin kept them from a greater revival. Perhaps you want to see God do some great things once again in your life and to use you to bring revival in people's lives and excitement about the Lord. But if there is secret sin, if there is unconfessed sin, you can never experience the revival that the Lord may want to do in your life. That's why we need to recognize the little measure of revival God has set and cherish it and act upon it for revival to take place in our hearts. The word revive means to, to flourish again, to come back to life. But before there can be true revival, there has to be true repentance and a return to the, to the study of the Word of God. We already read that the people trembled at the Word of God, and, and we'll see repentance as well. But before we do, as Ezra is praying, he gives us four interesting pictures or images that relate to God working in our lives to bring about revival. He says the first picture is that of a remnant. Again, verse 8. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. Like that. There's a passage in 1 Kings chapter 11 in which a garment is, 12 into, is torn into 12 remnants, each one symbolizing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It says this in 1 Kings 11, 30-33, Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus is the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me. The idea was that because Solomon had sinned by marrying pagan wives and worshiping false gods, that the kingdom would be taken away from his descendants, but there would still be a remnant, a piece of that material, a piece of that garment. And that's the same thing here in Ezra. Even though the garment might be soiled or torn, there's always a remnant that God's going to keep safe. Israel was the garment. They had been soiled by sin, then torn apart by the Babylonians. God had granted a little measure of revival by sending to Jerusalem a small remnant of His people and it kept safe, kept them safe. God always has a remnant of people that will follow Him. And then verse 8, the next thing, the second image is to give us a peg in His holy place. So if the second image is that of a peg, some of your Bibles might translate the word as nail instead of peg. It seems to be describing a, a tent peg or a tent stake. You know, a tent peg holds down the tent and keeps it from being blown away in the wind. The, the returnees were like a tent peg sent back to anchor the nation. The third image is that of illumination. He says there in verse 8 that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. 
It's as if, it's as if that, that they'd been dying, but God granted them new life. Instead of their eyes going dark, they were shining bright from the life within them. It's almost like a resurrection. And the fourth image in verse 9 is that of a wall. Look at verse 9. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. A wall speaks of protection. God has been working through His mighty providence to give them favor with the kings of Persia. He had secured their release and their return. So God had enlightened their eyes to serve Him in Jerusalem. Gather the remnant to go back and He would stake them down, settle them, and the Lord would be a wall of protection for them. Same thing that God does in our lives. And your life as a believer, your eyes are enlightened by the life of God within you. You're part of a, a small remnant of believers living in the last days in this hostile world. And out of the world, the, the Lord is, is, is our wall of protection for us. Nothing can occur that is outside of us allowing it for, for our good and for His glory. And then you so you are to see yourself as a tent peg. You've been driven to the ground by your circumstances in order to uphold the gospel. Your faith is anchored deep into the ground of God's Word for all to see. God's got you pegged down right where He wants you. Yes, God is fully capable of granting a more traditional revival, one in which you know many hundreds of thousands of people you know, come to Jesus. But I believe revival starts small. Revival starts in the heart individually. And as we make that commitment to Him to be in His Word and avoid being in sin, that's where it starts. You, you can't have both. You can't uh, want revival and inner sin or secret sin in your life. You can't expect God to bless if that happens. That's why Ezra continues now in his prayer, verses 10 through 15. He says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Wow. And have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant and as it is this day, here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. How did God's people repay him for his mercy and grace? They rebelled again. Sin, intermarrying with the heathen. Notice as we finish chapter 9, that in Ezra's prayer, he made no excuses. There was no attempted excuses. There are no words to God, but we're sorry. No excuses. I think it's real easy to give halfway apologies. Adam did it. Lord, it was the, the woman that you gave me. No, uh, not Ezra. And he wasn't even the one caught in the sin. But simply Ezra humbled himself, recognizes God's righteousness, and acknowledges their guilt. He says, here we are before you, and our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. No excuses, just confession. 
Now we come to chapter 10. Verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. So as Ezra was praying, the original group that had come to him stood weeping. This attracted even a larger crowd. One of the men in the crowd named Shechaniah confessed in agreement, saying, yes, we have been unfaithful to God by doing this, but, but there's still hope in spite of this. Now making a statement like that, uh, Shechaniah seems to have a more biblical and balanced view of God than most Christians do today. See, a lot of believers, uh, they seem to be totally convinced that either God is angry at them all the time, judging their sin, or he's gracefully forgiving all sin. They perceive him as being continually angry or perpetually smiling one or the other. But the truth is exactly what Shechaniah says. We have trespassed against our God, yet now there is hope. There's hope. Yeah, God judges sin, but forgives those who are repentant. Yeah, God hates rebellion and iniquity, but gives man time to realize his wrongdoing and turn away from it. God is angered by transgression, but is merciful to transgressors that seek his forgiveness. You see, he seems to have a clearer view of the heart of God than most. And he goes on with this suggestion. Look at verse 3. He says, Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now let me say this before we get too far into chapter 10. This is not about divorce. The word divorce is not even mentioned in this chapter. Ezra was dealing with unlawful marriages. Passages of scripture in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy chapter 7, absolutely, you know, prohibit, as we read already, marriages between Israelites and unbelieving people of the nation surrounding them. People who are found to be unlawfully get a divorce, their marriage is voided or dissolved by some other legal means. I guess you could look at it from the standpoint today in America, even though all 50 states allow same-sex marriage, same-sex marriage, God doesn't recognize it and he calls it sin. So if a person comes to faith in Christ, repents of their sins, turns to the Lord, do they have to get a, a divorce? <laughs> well, not in God's eyes. They were never married to begin with. So in the same way, what Shechaniah really is talking about here is chapter 10 is not so much marital separation, but spiritual separation. This was an ungodly union that never should have happened in the first place. We are called, according to 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So Shechaniah is basically saying what Paul said in 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Come out from among them. Be separate from them. So then Ezra responds. Now look at verses 6 to 8. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, 
all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So they're making a, a red line in the sand. They're making a real separation. It was proclaimed that all of the Jews who had returned from Babylon had to come to Jerusalem within three days to deal with the sin. And whoever didn't come, their property would be confiscated and they'd be excommunicated. Now, I don't think we could really do that in our day and age. Although I think it certainly would make the church a lot more holy. Could you imagine? Okay, it's time for everybody to turn from their sin. Everyone has three days to get to the church. Otherwise, the elders are going to come to your house and we're going to confiscate your house and everything you have. Now, I, for one, am certainly glad we, you know, we don't do that. Romans 2.4 tells us it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We don't have to send out moving vans to clean out houses to lead us to repentance. But I tell you this, it would work. There'd be some spiritual house cleaning done. Dave Vernon McGee puts it this way. What some churches need is some house cleaning. He says, what the average church needs to do is get rid of some of the members who need to repent but will not repent. I find that God has a way of doing that himself. But obviously those in leadership are not aware of the sin that's going on in every person's life. But usually it's a downward spiral path. You know, sin comes in. They they stop coming to church on Wednesday night. They stop coming to church on maybe a men's study or women's study. They stop coming on Sunday morning, kind of hit and miss. and, and, And because they're letting their sin get in their way. And they fail to repent. And it leads to emptiness in, in people's lives. His physical property may not be confiscated, but his joy, his peace, his fellowship with other believers, that's all gone. When you, when you walk away, when you continue to live in sin, you're left empty until you repent and get right with the Lord. And the sad thing is, when a person is in sin, they're unaware of the effect that it has on not just them, but the whole family. Here in Ezra, there were children from these mixed marriages. All the way around, this was a bad deal. And that's the way sin works. People don't realize the repercussions of sin. Yeah, God forgives. Praise the Lord. But there are consequences from sin. God forgives the alcoholic. But unless he chooses to heal you physically, your liver may be shot due to that sin. Hebrews 11.25 tells us sin is pleasurable for a season. But the end result is always destruction. I really think that, that every Christian should watch Pinocchio at least once a year, not the Geico commercials. You have potential. You have No, that's not that one. Not even, not even the whole movie. Just the Pleasure Island part. Just that part. Because that scene really portrays the world as a place of forbidden and intoxicating pleasures. You can get your fill, but there's a price to pay. You know, in the end, Lampy is turned into a donkey and enslaved to work the mines, and Pinocchio barely escapes, but he has a, the features of a donkey for a while. And it just goes to show us, going after the pleasures of sin just turns into a stupid donkey. Let's move on. Verse 9. They do what Ezra shares, says. They show up in three days. Verse 9. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. Stop there for a moment. It's one thing to repent and stop the direction you're going. That's what repentance is. It's another thing to start moving in the right direction. Ezra here says, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. 
See, confession, repentance, there must be a complete confession of sin, not holding anything back, being accountable to God. God knows what you've done, but you've got to go to Him and say, Lord, I have done this, 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 and this, and I am guilty of it. We see this here, what, what it's laid out here in, the, in these chapters here. Confessing our sin. And then moving to repentance, stopping the way you're going, turning and going the other way. John the Baptist, in talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Often in the Bible, when you see the word repent, it's accompanied with another word, believe. Confess, repent, and believe is the gospel. Confession and repentance is one side, believe is the other. Two sides of the same coin. To repent means to turn from sin. To believe means I turn to God. It's a complete turning. I just don't deny my flesh and turn from sinful, evil things. But I make that complete turn and I turn to the Lord. Ezra says, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. John says in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. See, repentance is an inward change that results in an outward change. Means I'm going to change on the inside, and sooner or later somebody on the outside is going to notice that I've changed on the inside. Reminds me of a story that about a man who dialed the wrong number and got the following recording. I am not available right now, but I thank you for caring enough to call. I am making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of those changes. That would say by far that the greatest evidence for someone actually being born again is the noticeable outward changes that take place when someone is repentant of their old ways and decides to live for Christ. That's what's supposed to be happening in all of our lives. Changes need to take place. Ezra goes on in verse 11 telling them just that. Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Verse 12. Then all the assembly answered, and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of the cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Ezra confronted the Israelites with their sins, told them what they needed to do, and surprisingly the people agreed, but the suggestion was, let's get past the hard rain. It was December according to our calendars, and it was going to take some time to let the leaders of the people administrate this command locally. Sadly, not everyone was in agreement with this plan. Verse 15 says, Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Sabbathai, the Levite, gave them support. I don't know on what ground they opposed this. Maybe it has to do with the fact that Meshulam was one of the guys who had married a foreign woman, according to verse 29. You know, didn't want it, didn't want to do it, didn't like it, was dragging his feet, but the bottom line is they were complaining. They didn't like the idea at all. Uh, I like what J. Vernon McGee again says. He says they were bitter. He says bitterness today is like quinine in a barrel of water. It doesn't take much to make the water bitter. He said, he goes on, he says, I remember when I was a boy, my mother would always tell me when I cut up a chicken, be careful and don't break the gallbladder. You'll ruin the whole chicken if you do. She was right. You could spoil the entire fowl if you broke the gallbladder. God wants to get rid of that gallbladder of bitterness in His church. 
Only like Javer and McGee could say. Hebrews 12:15 tells us, Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. They knew what to do. They didn't want to do it. They were, became bitter. Uh, a few complainers and critics in the church can absolutely stifle any spiritual movement that God desires to do, let alone how many lives have been ruined from bitterness. I do appreciate that nothing else is mentioned about these complainers. It was like, you can complain all you want. Nothing's going to change. We're still going to obey God rather than men. And nothing more was said. Just that we read on verse 16, Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each one of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So in verse 17, the local leaders completed their investigations, confronted the men with their sin. Now this could not have been a comfortable situation for anyone. Not the leaders, not the men who had married their foreign wives, and certainly not the wives themselves. It's tough. And I can relate to how tough it is. As a pastor, I'm occasionally put in situations where I have an obligation to confront someone with sin and to deal with it as I see with the Word of God dictating that I must. And even though I am in the will of God and obligated as his ambassador, it's still not comfortable to have to confront someone who's in sin. Feelings can be hurt, friendships are strained, and if there's no repentance, man, gossip could erupt, controversy erupts and fallout happens, but no matter how difficult, how uncomfortable or controversial it may be, I have to as God's ambassadors. And the hard part is when people do get upset and they refuse to recognize their sin and they just continue to rebel, not to me, but to God. It's sad. Because sooner or later, as we begin to study, their sin will find them out. There are repercussions. As we saw here. Finally, as we finish our study in Ezra, we see verse 18. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the sons of Josedach and his brothers, Masiah, Eleazar, Jerib, and Jedaliah, and they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespasses offerings. Also, the sons of, you can read them for yourself, down to verse 44, <laughs> verse 44 says, And all these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Now, there's, there's something interesting about these names that I didn't read. The chapter ends with these lists of those who had taken pagan wives, but repented and separated themselves from them and their children by them. Nothing more is said of them. Let me say this before we close. We have a tendency to misunderstand the seriousness of these intermarriages. We, we might think that, well, some of them simply marrying a person from another ethnic background, what could be wrong with that? But you must realize that it just wasn't the marriages themselves. It was the influence of the pagan wives. It was about racial purity. It was about religious purity, as we looked at already. These cultures, these women came from, were horribly uh, decadent. They practiced child sacrifice. They worshipped idols that were empowered by demons. Their religious rituals involved all manner of sexual perversions. And, and it was these practices that made these, these marriages so dangerous and called for such a radical response. These pagan wives were leading the Jewish husbands in idolatry and perversion. So what happened after these marriages were dissolved? No one knows, but I'd like to suggest something. 
The same law that prohibits these marriages also had provisions for a person to proselyte and become a member of the Jewish congregation. Even though these marriages to foreigners were unlawful, it was possible if the unbeliever converted. There are some notable examples in history. Rahab was saved when Jericho was destroyed and she married into the congregation. So was Ruth, a woman from Moab. She was saved and then married into the congregation of Israel. Perhaps these foreign wives in Ezra, at least some of them repented and returned to Israelite believers even, they would have, even though they would have hope in spite of their sin. But then again, think about this. I know it was not easy for these 130 men to come and say, okay, we're going to kiss our wives goodbye and say farewell to our kids and let them go back into the land from which they came. That would not be easy for any man. But what is great is that they were willing to do what was right when they heard the voice of God speaking through Ezra. So why the list of names here at the end of this chapter? Why is it interesting? I believe this list, including 17 priests and 10 Levites, is not one of condemnation, but one of commendation of these men who were willing to do whatever it took to be right with God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. It's one thing to say, I'm sorry. It's another thing to say, I'm sorry, and I'm changing direction I'm going. So I believe that the Lord is honored by that and even blesses if you not only repent, but you start to do what is right. When Peter said to Jesus in Matthew 19, 27, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? Jesus answered and said this, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or land for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Confession, separation have eternal ramifications and in every one of our lives without exception there are decisions that must be made regarding these issues in one way or another. Make the right choice. Learn the lesson from Ezra. God won't let you down. He'll restore it a hundredfold. Just trust and obey. Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. Let's pray.